holy, holy, holy. Lord, you are so holy. You are our everything. Help us this morning to learn to live that way. Open your word to us, Lord. Show us how it would change us. Help it to show us how you would have us live. Help me to get out of the way, Lord, and let your word just flow through me and let your word change the hearts and the minds of the people in this room. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your holiness. And we thank you for this time together and we ask your blessings on it. Amen. So there is a Jewish psychiatrist named Viktor Frankl who lived in Austria in the 1930s and the 1940s. I suspect a lot of you have heard of him. Um, in 1944, during the reign of the Third Reich, uh, Viktor Frankl was told by the German government that he would be boarding a train uh, to just go to a, a standard labor camp in order to support the war effort, the German war effort. During that journey, Viktor Frankl learned that he wasn't destined for labor camp. He learned that he was destined for a prison camp called Auschwitz. I suspect I don't need to explain what that name means. Um, and I also suspect that I don't need uh, to describe in any way uh, the horrors that, that Viktor Frankl recounts in his book. Suffice it to say that the worst that you can imagine is better than the, than the reality. In fact, Frankl himself tells of a story when he was sleeping next to a man, and this man started to thrash in his sleep, and it was clear that he was having a nightmare. And Victor reached out to shake him awake as we normally would when we see someone's, someone's having a nightmare, and he stopped himself. And what stayed Victor's hand was the certainty that whatever this man was dreaming about was better than what he would wake up to. So Victor left that man to the comfort of his nightmare. Now, perhaps as a coping mechanism, uh, Frankel never says specifically, but... In his time at the camp, he, he, he observed almost as a scientist, as a psychiatrist, what different groups of people's reactions were to the circumstances that they saw there. He grouped them into three groups. One group he saw succumb to the horrors and to despair and to helplessness and hopelessness. These people, Frankel noted, didn't last long in the camps. Now, there's another group, and these were, were who the, the Jewish prisoners referred to as the kapos, and these were actually Jewish prisoners who worked for the prison guards. And they would work in exchange for little favors or, or privileges, right? And, and Frankel's description leaves little doubt that, that these kapos were in fact more violent and more cruel and oftentimes more morally reprehensible than the guards themselves. Right? But Victor saw a, a, a third group. And it's this group that he wrote his book about. It's called The Man's Search for Meaning. And this group stunned and baffled Frankel. They respond to their circumstances not with despair and, and not with cruelty and resentment, but with dignity, with perseverance. And Frankel made it his life work, life's work to understand what the difference was among these people, what made them unique. And through his observations in the camp and his writings, he was able to conclude that it was the fact that these people lived and lived their lives according to a purpose that was greater than their circumstances. These people had discovered what Frankel termed, and I'm quoting, man's last freedom. And this is the freedom that he says to choose one's response no matter what life circumstances are. Victor saw that people who exercised this freedom in pursuit of a, of a purpose that transcended their circumstances also transcended their suffering. I'll quote him again where he says, in some ways... Suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning, such as the meaning of a sacrifice. Those who found such a purpose, Frankel saw, were able to face their horrific circumstances with peace, sometimes even with joy, and sometimes even finding beauty behind the, the barbed wires of that concentration camp. Victor concludes from this observation that, and he's quoting Nietzsche, unfortunately, but, but he concludes that, a man with a why can endure any how. Right? 
Now, Victor stops short in his writings of identifying what that the supreme why is, the, 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 the why that we understand, that supreme purpose, that if we work for that purpose, we also can transcend any suffering in our lives, right? We all know what that purpose is. It's serving a holy God, the creator of the universe, the author and completer of our salvation. If this is our purpose, right, then we can transcend any suffering. And it's my hope today that in exploring the scripture that, that we're going to talk about, that, that we can orient ourselves on this purpose. And in doing that, we can capture some of this peace and, and some of this joy and, and some of this resilience that, that we see in, in Frankel's writings. And in a particular aspect of our lives, and that aspect is, uh, interestingly, our, our occupations. Right? I understand that's, a, that's a, a, a tall order in a 45 minute, well, 40 minutes now, message. So I'm going to get, I'm going to get right into it, right? And so we've been working our way through the book of First Thessalonians um, so far this year, and we've been doing it in light of this overarching theme, which is in view of Christ's return, having, having hope and having comfort. And that brings us to what we're going to look at today, which is First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4 and in verse 1. And while we're turning there, I'll just preface that um, what we see here is a turning point in the, in the book of Thessalonians. And we'll see this actually as, as we read this, the first portion of the text. And, and Paul writes here, Finally then, brethren, we urge you and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and how you do walk to please God. And I'll, I'll pause there for just a second and just say that this is where we've been so far in this study. This is the first three chapters that, that, we've, that we've gone through where Paul is recounting, he's looking towards the past, what his instructions were to them and, and how they were walking so far. And then we see the transition here in, in, this, in, this, uh, in this passage where he says, we urge you to abound more and more, right? And so what he's doing here is he's looked to the past, he's, he's drawn lessons and, 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 and encouragement from the past, and now he's turning to the future and saying, I'm urging you to abound more and more. He wants them to, other translations, to excel more and more. So now he's looking towards the future, and he's, he's giving them, them guidance for their walk to please the Lord, right? And he doesn't bury the headline here. He tells us exactly what this means for the, for the new believers in Thessalonica. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, Right? And then he goes on and he talks about two specific contexts in which this sanctification plays out. It's, it's sexual immorality, and then it's, it's brotherly love, and in particular as this is, as this is demonstrated through the Thessalonians' work and their, and their occupation. Right? But it's, it's, it's sanctification. This is the point that he's, that he's making. This is the big point that he's making. I think most of us understand sanctification, or, or to be sanctified is to be set aside, right? It's to be made, this is what the commentators say, to be made, made um, fit for God's special use and purpose, right? It's, it's the same word as holy. And I think most of us have, have been here long enough, we, we understand that this is a process that begins with our salvation, and it continues as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts day to day to, 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 to gradually conform us to the present reality of our salvation, to live out our salvation in our, in our day-to-day lives. This is the walk of sanctification, the walk to please the Lord. I think we all know that conceptually, um, but as I said, we're going to talk about sanctification in two really specific contexts. So I think it would be helpful for us to think about really specific tools to understand what sanctification is, concrete things to guide us in this walk of sanctification that we can apply in these contexts. And there are obvious ones, right? There are ones that we're all familiar with. For example, the commandments, right? The commandments tell us how to be holy, how to be righteous, you know, presumably being progressively more obedient to the commands. It's also going to be, make us progressively more fit for God's special use and purpose, right? Another one that I think we're familiar with is Christ's example. We're told throughout the, the New Testament that you know, the, the work of sanctification is to make us more and more in conformance with the, the image of Christ, to, to demonstrate Christ more and more through our, our daily life. And again, I think we're, all, we're familiar with these. But what I want to talk about today is sort of a third marker, a third, a third way to think about sanctification that can guide us, and I think particularly lends itself to guiding us through these concepts we talk about today. And that is using God's perfect plan for an aspect of our lives pre-fall as a model for what a sanctified aspect of our lives could look like. That sounds hard to understand the abstracts. So we'll, we'll talk about it in a specific context, and we can talk about it in the first context that Paul talks about here, which is sexual immorality. And if you've ever been to a Christian wedding, 
You know that sex and, and marriage and, and sexual immorality and all those things are inexplicably intertwined, right? Sexual immorality is about adultery and, and about you know, um, undermining the holy, the holy covenant of marriage, right? And so at, at, at Christian weddings, when we talk about sanctifying our marriages and we talk about sanctifying our sex lives, oftentimes what we do is we look back to what marriage looked like in the Garden of Eden pre-fall, right? And indeed, we see in Genesis that, that the Bible paints this beautiful picture, this beautiful vision of what marriage and sex can look like, right? You have this image of a, of a man and a woman who are one flesh, and, and they're walking in perfect fellowship with God, and they're, they're, they're walking with him in the garden in, in the evening when it's breezy, right? And then they're, they're so in love with each other, they're so loving and comfortable with each other that they're, that they're naked and unashamed in each other's presence. And there's a beautiful vision of marriage, a beautiful vision of human sexuality. And I think we, it's pretty easy to see how if we combine that image with these other markers that we've talked about, the commandments, with you know, um, embodying Jesus in our daily lives, we can see how this could all come together to really guide us in our walk of sanctification and, and, and sanctifying our marriage, right? It'd be easy to see as Paul's talking here about abstaining from sexual immorality, that like what could be more detrimental? What could be more antithetical to this perfect vision and the commandments that are about marriage than the betrayal and, and, and the devastation that comes from, from adultery, right? And so I think you can see how all this can work together to give us a good model, right, for what our sanctification can look like in certain contexts. And so I hope you guys are all with me because we're going to take this model, we're going to take this lens through which we can view sanctification, and we're going to apply it to the second uh, context that, that Paul talks about, and that is brotherly love and how, this is, how brotherly love plays out in, in our occupations and in our work. Right? And so to do that, let's turn, uh, turn to back to the text. And here we're going to be still in chapter 4, but in verses 9 through 12. And here Paul writes, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. So that's our primary text today. And I don't know about you guys, but this seems to me to be kind of an odd transition, right? Like Paul starts by talking about their, their love for their brethren, right? He's, he's commending them, like, great job, you're, you're, you're loving each other in the church, right? Okay, I'm with them. And then he says, this love is, is, is abounding so much that it's sort of like spilling out into these other assemblies in Macedonia, like, great job, I'm still with you. And he says, abound more and more, right? Your love should abound more and more. This is sanctification. This is the outpouring of love more and more in your daily lives. Got it, got it, Paul. But then what does he say there? He says, I want your love to abound more and more. So, you know, go tend to the sick, is that what he says? He says, I want your, your love to abound more and more, so, so minister to widows and orphans. Right? Is that what he says? No, he says, I want your love to abound more and more, so lead a quiet life, work with your hands, right? and mind your business, and attend to your business. What is Paul doing here? I mean, he's, he's obviously just talking about their daily work, right? Like, what is his daily, what, are your, what does your daily work have to do with love? What does your daily work have to do with sanctification? Isn't this just like mundane advice that's is better, not that Proverbs are, are mundane, but better, it's better suited for, for Proverbs than Paul's towering works of theology? Like, what is Paul doing here? Uh, I think to understand that, we can go back to that tool that, that we just developed, right? We can look at work. He's talking about sanctifying our work. He's talking about it being an outpouring of love. We can, we can look at work through this lens of God's original intent for work pre-fall, before sin corrupted it. We can maybe use that to guide us in what Paul's talking about here. And to do that, we have to go back. Right? We have to go all the way back. And I'm talking the first page of your Bible, chapter 1, page 1, verse 1. <laughs> it's, the, it's easy to find. This is not going to be a, a, a much of a sword drill for you guys. So here, here it is. I wish I could channel James Earl Jones when I read this. If Mark Belcher was here, I would have him do it. I don't see him, so I'll just have to do it. Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Even if I'm not James Earl Jones, that's a really powerful image, isn't it? I just, it's totally off subject, but it's so poetic and powerful and, and mind-boggling of an image. Um, just pause for a second and think that, but so, so back to, that's off script. <laughs> so um, back to where we are. So what we've seen here is that God has done this uniquely divine act of bringing existence into existence, right? And then he's, he's, he's created something out of nothing. But what is this something that he, he's created? He's created something that is without form and void. What does that mean? You see this variously translated as formless and desolate, without form and empty. In the Hebrew, it's tohu vabohu, which is really interesting. It's a rhyme, right? And I've, I actually found a, a Hebrew scholar who translated it, it wild and waste, which it preserves the rhyme. Isn't that interesting? But it's just the, 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 this is really vivid image. And I think what it's getting at here is God has created something. He's created the universe, right? But he hasn't done anything with it yet, right? It's all this vast potentiality, this unrealized potentiality. And then what we see God doing is day by day throughout the rest of the process of creation, what is he doing? He creates, we see a pattern of him creating complexity and then order and purpose. He's imbuing it with complexity and order and purpose as we go. We can see that right here on, 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 on day one. God creates light on day one, right? So this is something that didn't exist before. He's ordered this creation into light. And then what does he do? He ordains it into this cycle of day and night, right? So it's like complexity. There's light. There wasn't light here before. There's order, right? And we'll see what the purpose is later. But he does the same thing on day three, or not the same thing, but we can see this pattern again on day three where, where, where God creates the, the plants, right, and the herbs. You can't, can't forget the herbs. He, he, he adds this, this wondrous variety of, of plants, right? So it's complexity. And then what does he say? He, he ordains that, it, it, that each bears fruit and seeds according to its kind, right? So you have this additional complexity of all of these plants. Then you have the order of, of what, speciation, right? And, and, and even deeper, you know, the, the, the order and, and complexity and synchrony of the genetic code, right? That's what, that's what we're getting at here. So this is order and complexity. And this, this process continues. I, don't, I think we're familiar enough with the narrative that we don't have to talk through it, but you can see this pattern, right? And, and it goes all the way, so it goes all the way through the sixth day, and he, he creates, um, creates the universe and he doesn't stop there, right? He creates this garden, right? And within this garden, he creates trees that, that the Bible says are beautiful. So apparently he's created these trees for the sake of beauty, right? And in this garden, there's fruit for, for man to eat, right? And we can also see that throughout creation, God steps back on occasion and he says, wow, this is awesome, Right? I mean, I, I don't know what translation that is. The message or something, maybe. <laughs> but he, he says this is good, right? So we see him taking, taking a step back and looking at what he did and, and delighting in it, right? And this goes all the way through the, the sixth day. And then on the seventh day, um, I, I probably don't need to turn to this, but you can if, if you would like. In verse 2-2, two, two, we all know that he rested on the, on, on the seventh day, right? But it's interesting to look at what he rested from. He rested from, on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work. It's important and interesting that this word for work in the Hebrew, it's the same thing you and I are going to go do tomorrow morning. This is labor. This is, this is essentially just, it's work, as we understand the word. It's not some unique divine thing, right? And so we see here that God is a worker. Right? And so now we can turn to the humans that God created on, on the sixth day, and we know that he created them in his image, like imbued with some of his divinity, right? And then he, he puts them in his creation, and in, and in chapter 1, verse 28, he says, it says, then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the, and the rest of the creation, right? Fill the earth and subdue it. I'll make one point. Subdue doesn't mean, as, as you hear, 
at some way. It doesn't mean despoil it. It doesn't mean exploit it, right? Subdue here means create order from it. It means tame it. It means bring it under control, right? So fill it. Be, make, make it more productive, right? And, and, and bring order to it. Subdue it, right? And, and we also see in 2.15 that God puts man in the garden, and he says, tend it, right? We saw that God created this garden with things in it that are beautiful and, and to produce fruit. And he puts man in there, and he says, tend it which presumably means make it more beautiful and more fruitful, more productive, right? And so now I think we have the pieces in place to, 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 to have a really robust and I would say really magnificent vision of what work looks like, what God intended work to look like, our occupations to look like. And that is we see God in this creative process, right? He, and then he creates man, and he, and, and he makes man in his own image as a worker, right? God's a worker. Man is in his image as a worker. And he brings mankind alongside of him in this, in this process, in this creative process of bringing order to the untapped potential in God's creation, right? Of bring order and life and light and, and, and productivity and beauty. Come alongside God in his work in doing that, right? And we're created in God's image. There's no reason to think that, that we're not intended to also to, to take joy in it and to delight in it exactly as God did, right? It's such a beautiful, magnificent, grand vision of work that we have. And just like marriage, I, I think that we can take this vision and we can, and we can use it and apply it in, the, the, in our fallen world that we live in now to understand what it looks like to sanctify our work. Right? And so, how would you do that? Well, I think, again, exactly like with marriage, you, you should go back to the first principles that we just established in Genesis. So you can ask yourself, if God's concept of work is for us to come alongside of him and, and what he's doing, what is God doing in our fallen world, right? In other words, and, and to put a finer point on it, if the fundamental nature of what God is doing in his creation is bringing complexity and then order and purpose and light and life to the, to the unrealized potential of his creation— what, what might God see as the greatest source of unrealized potential, of, of chaos, of wild and waste in this world that mankind could come alongside of him and bring light and life and light to and purpose to? I would argue um, that it's the lives and hearts of unredeemed sinners. Think about it for a second. Think about mankind's potential. Mankind was the apex of God's creation. Our minds are the most complex, by orders of magnitude, things in all of God's creation. We were created in God's own image, imbued with with divinity, to come alongside God in his work and to live in fellowship with him for all eternity. That's the potential that, that 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 is inherent in every human soul and in every human life. And in our fallen world, that potential goes untapped, is wasted at best, and is corrupt and evil at worst, right? So Jesus tells us in John fifteen five that he is the vine and we are the branches. Right? Apart from him, we can do nothing, right? That's untapped potential. I think that's also the people in, that Frankel saw in the camps who succumbed to hopelessness and despair and basically were non-entities until they were snuffed out there, right? So that's unrealized potential. And then it could, it, that's at, at best is unrealized potential. At, at worst, we see that an unredeemed sinner, apart from the Lord, can be, can be crushed by the darkness and the futility of this world. And this can turn to despair, and it can turn to resentment, and it can turn to vengeance. Right? This is the dark path, I think, that we see Cain take, isn't it? I think this is maybe the path that we see the kapos take, the Jewish prisoners who, who were cruel and who Frankel both pitied and, and, and despised. And all of this is to say, and I know this is sort of heady, sort of theological. I get it, and, and just bear with me. You guys are the one that asked me to come up here, and this is how my brain works. So <laughs> you guys are along for the ride. Maybe you won't ask me back. But, but, but the point I'm making here is that you know, if this is what God's work is, to bring light and life and order and purpose to things that are, that are, that are un, to untapped potential, to darkness, to chaos, 
the human soul, the unredeemed human soul is the greatest source of that in all of existence, I would argue. It's not explicitly in the Bible, but I think you guys can, you can see the point, right? And if that's the case, then, then what follows is that, that God's work is to bring his light and life and, and chaos to this, right? We see this in Second Peter, that this is in fact what God wants. We see in Second Peter, he te- Peter tells us that it's God's will that not a single person should perish, that all should be redeemed right? That's God's work here, his primary work here, right? And then we see that that's the work of Jesus. That was Jesus's ministry, his work on the cross, that no one should perish. And we all know that God explicitly calls him alongside of him in this work, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. This is, this is the, the, the great commission. Make disciples of all, na- of all nations. In other words, come alongside me and into this work. Come alongside me in this work that none should perish, right? All of this is to say that I think if this is our model for work, then we've just made a really strong argument that the way that we sanctify our work, that we come alongside God the way he intended, I think the way we do that is by being witnesses in our occupations. There was a lot of talking to get there, but I, I think that's where we can end up. You don't have to end up there. There's a lot of literature about what all of this means in, in, in our occupations, but I think this is a universal thing, right? I, I, we are all called to make disciples of all nations. And so we can see our work universally in this way, I think. And so if this is the case, I think we can turn back to what Paul is saying here and make a lot more sense of it. It's not a non sequitur, the way it appears at at, at first sight. Paul is saying, you are loving your brothers. You need to turn outside the church and love the rest of the world. You need to abound in this more and more. So go to work. Well, if, if what your work is in a sanctified world is to witness then obviously that's, then obviously what Paul sees is that their work, their daily work, is the best way they can witness and the best way that they can love the people around them, right? And I think we can say that about us too. And so with this in mind, I think we can turn to Paul's text and, and his, specific, his specific guidance in the text to make a lot more sense of it. And we can see that it's anything but mundane. We can see it's transformational. So the first thing he says He says, lead a quiet life. Here in context, this word quiet doesn't mean turn down the volume, be meek. I mean, that's not what quiet means here. What quiet means here is to lead a life of peace, of confidence, right? Of stability. Of, it's, it's, it's to exude steadfastness, right? This is what this, the quiet life means here. And I think if we're understanding what Paul is saying here, the way we've been talking about, he's saying if we're going to be witnesses in our work, this is the way we're called to be witnesses, right? We're called to exude this, this, this peace, this, this quiet, right? We're called to be an example of, you know, the joy and the peace and the gratitude that comes from our salvation and an example of that to the people in our workplace. Are we being that? He's asking, or are we being grasping and greedy and resentful and lazy and all the other things that, that, that one could be at their workplace, right? That wouldn't be a good witness. In other words, I think what Paul is saying is, if you are a vision to your, cohort, to the, to your co-workers and other people you come in contact with of Jesus, what vision are you being, right? And he's calling us to be one of quiet certainty, essentially. Right? And a lot of you are probably thinking, well, Jer, that's pretty hard. You do not know what my job looks like, right? And I think the first thing I would say to that is, you're right. It is hard. We're in a fallen world, and we're called to pick up our cross, take up our cross every single day. That's hard. We're called to die to ourselves every single day. That's hard. I would also say something else. It's more encouraging, maybe. <laughs> But that's true. But more encouraging would be we've already started the process of getting there. I think one of the most powerful tools that we have to, to achieving this quiet, achieving this peace that, that, that God is calling us to do here is to reconceptualize work in exactly the way that we're doing. Think about it for a second. If, if the way you think about work is that you're going to find your peace and your security and your stability in your job or in your paycheck, how could you be anything but anxious? You don't have any control over whether your company fires you or what the markets do. If your if your sense of self worth is tied up in your professional achievement, how could you be anything but resentful? 
right? You're going to accomplish the things you want to accomplish. You're going to take a second. You're going to look around and you're going to see there's a multitude of people who are wealthier and smarter and more talented and more successful than you are. Probably just in your field, maybe in your building, right? Of course, you're going to be resentful, right? And and even if you accomplish everything here in the world and in the flesh that you wanted to accomplish, what's going to happen is you're going to get to the end of your short little life, right? You're going to look at this, this, this castle in the sand that you've been, you've just built, right? And you're going to conclude as you have to. And as Solomon did, this is vanity. All of this work I just did, it's going to, it's going to, I'm going to die and it's going to go to somebody else who didn't work for it. And this is meaningless. He says it's vanity, right? It's worthless, right? And so basically what I'm saying here is, is if work is your idol, it will fail you. And it will show, and that failure will show in your attitude, in your response, and in your demeanor at work, right? But contrast that instead with someone who imagines their work as service to God. Not imagines, conceptualizes their work as service to God. If your goal when you go into your job, into your workplace, is to demonstrate righteousness, to demonstrate integrity, to be a picture of Jesus in your workplace, could anyone stop you from doing that? Could the markets stop you from doing that? Could your boss stop you from doing that? Gun to your head. Could anything stop you from doing that? No, of course not. There's stories in the Bible and and, and endless accounts of martyrs that tell us, no, there's nothing in this world that can rob us from our integrity, from our desire to serve God. You, are, you, you, you cannot fail in this if this is your goal and this is what you want to do. And, and, and if you're conceptualizing your work this way, you're thinking about it this way, you're in exactly the space that Frankel was talking about. This is the last human freedom, right? This is, the, this is having a transcendent purpose and using that purpose to, to choose your response no matter what the circumstances are. Right? If this is the, the place that you're in, the place that your heart and mind is in, then this is how you're going to have that peace that Frankel talked about Right? And this is how you're going to have the quiet life. Right? This is how you pursue the quiet life in your work. And this is what is going to be your witness to those around you. What else does he say? He says, work with your hands. This is my favorite part. Work with your hands. I read this as sort of two orders. Right? First is work. I mean, you can't work with your hands unless you're first working, right? Now, Paul's telling this to the Thessalonians because, and we'll, I, we'll learn more particularly in Second Thessalonians, that they've taken this idea of peace and comfort and Christ's return a little too far, right? Essentially, what, 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 we, what we think that they had done is they'd, they'd used this as an excuse to, to disengage from life, to quit their jobs, to, be, to mooch off of their community and just sit around and sing hymns and count days until Christ came back, right? And they felt that they were validated in this. And what Paul tells them is, no, this is wrong. This couldn't be more wrong. Christ's imminent return doesn't make your work meaningless. It makes it far more meaningful, right? When Christ comes back, the curtains come down. If sinners aren't redeemed by then, it's game over. And in the meantime, sinners are dying every day. And so what does he tell them to do? He says, get out there, get in your mission field, get to work. Right? And he's telling us the same thing. This is a call to arms. You are made to work. You are made to be on mission. You are made with a purpose. Get out there, do it, get up, go. That's what he's saying here. Right? He's saying the same thing to us. If you don't have a job, get one. Right? If you're retired and you think that's it, Right? Go talk to Stan about being retired and not working. He'll tell you exactly what work looks like when you're retired and you can continue to serve the Lord. Right? I don't know if I'm supposed to call people out like that from up here. But. <laughs> and, and, and so if you don't have a job, get one. Right? And, and if you're not motivated in your work, the, the picture of work, the vision of work that we've just painted and that the Bible paints is, is it's the most grand, epic adventure and it's the, the, the greatest consequences. Literally, it's, it's archetypal. It's the greatest that a human mind can imagine. If this doesn't motivate you in your job, nothing will. Think about your work this way. It will get you up in the morning, right? That's what Paul's saying. He says, get to work, okay? He also says, get to work with your hands. And this is an interesting thing to say. And here again, I think he's talking to the Thessalonians, but then he's also talking to us. Right? He's talking to the Thessalonians because they were part of this Greek culture. I think we understand that they had co-opted this Greek belief that manual labor was somehow demeaning to the worker. 
And they had used this as, as sort of a way to doubly validate this fact that they had quit working. Like, ah, oh, Jesus is coming back. Why bother? And, and this was demeaning to me anyway. So they quit. They quit their jobs. Not all of them, right? But, but a certain subsegment of them is what we think happened. And so Paul says, no. Again, that's wrong. No. And he says this, the same thing to us, right? He says, work with your hands. And the, the point that I think Paul is making here is that the context of your work doesn't matter, right? It, it, the, the, it's, the, it's the people that you're coming in contact with in the context of your work that matters. That's your mission, right? The, the work you're doing is just, it's just the, the structure you're doing. It's the building you're doing, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter what job you have. Paul is saying the work that God is calling you to is to get out in the world, be a sheep among wolves. Get out there in the trenches. Get out there in the, in the, in the mud and the blood and the endless suffering and the tragedy that comes with, with an unredeemed sinner apart from the Lord trying to make his living at a construction site or in the soulless, soul-crushing windowless cubicle of a corporation. This is where your mission field is. It's coming alongside people who, apart from Jesus, are, are hopelessly struggling with addictions, who are going home every day from their, from their job to a loveless marriage, who are, who are grinding their lives away, working for corporations, hoping somehow against all experience and rationality that their wealth or their status in this corporation is going to give them security or it's going to give them some sense of self-worth. That's what life looks like when you're unredeemed. That's what life looks like apart from your Savior. This is the wild and waste that we're called to cultivate. This is the chaos, the void that we're called to bring light and come alongside God and, and, and bring light and life and purpose to. This is your mission field. And if not you, then who? You may be the only access that God has to your workplace, right? You may be the only glimpse of the Savior, of the hope, that comes from Jesus Christ that these people are getting. You may be it. And if you've bifurcated your life somehow, if you think that where you're going to serve God is in teaching Sunday school on a, on a Sunday morning, is in, is in mustering courage to share the gospel with someone sitting on the airplane next to you, and if you think serving God is reserved in your life for, I'm going to work a whole lot now, I'm going to make a bunch of money, and someday I'm going to retire and be a missionary in, in the Philippines or whatever, like my hero Nate Bramson, or, or whatever, if, if you've bifurcated your life that way, and if you've used that as an excuse to go to your job every day and work just like everyone else works, and don't share the gospel, and don't witness, if you've bifurcated your life that way, what you're doing is you're abandoning the people that you're working with. You're abandoning the customers that you're coming in contact with. You're abandoning these unredeemed sinners. And you're blithely watching them as they, as they struggle through their lives in suffering and in hopelessness because they're separated from Christ and they don't know the hope of Christ and they don't know the, the work of sanctification in their lives. And you're watching them approach the cliff of their death where they're going to go into the abyss of an eternity without a loving God. And I'm, I'm, I'm emotional and that's because the person I'm describing right now is me. I'm not pointing my finger at you. It's me. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't go be a missionary if this is where you're called. I'm not saying don't teach Sunday school. What I'm saying is you can, you can serve God in any context. God calls missionaries, certainly. God calls Sunday school teachers. What I'm saying and what Paul is saying here when he says work with your hands is that God also calls lawyers he calls bankers, he calls construction workers, he calls baristas. That's where your mission field is. Unless you're called somewhere else. That's where your mission field is. As Paul says elsewhere in Corinthians, everything you do, do for the glory of the Lord. So what qualifies for work for the Lord? Everything. Everything. Right? Not just, not just teaching Sunday school. Right? And finally... I'll, I'll turn to, I don't think you could, you could preach on this without quoting Martin Luther. He, in the Reformation, he was saying this to, to attack the, the institution of the priesthood, but I think it's equally applicable to us now. He says, The works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks but all works are measured before God by faith alone. 
A dairymaid, he concludes famously, you've all heard this, can milk cows to the glory of God. Right? Get out there. Go to work. Work with your hands. Finally, at least finally for our purposes, Paul says, tend to your work. Um, This is also translated as mind your business. And there's debate over exactly what this means. Some people think it means exactly what it means colloquially, like mind your own business. Because as as we talked about, and we'll see in more detail in 2 Thessalonians, um, we know that some of these Thessalonians had quit their jobs, right? And it, it seems as if, you know, they were sitting around and gossiping Um, about other people and causing issues, presumably because they just didn't have anything better to do. And Paul's telling them, don't do that anymore. And that's one way to understand this. But I think given this sort of grand concept of work that we've developed, I think another interpretation is maybe at least more appropriate to what we're talking about today. And that is where Paul is saying, it's more like, it's more like mind the shop. It's more like tend to your business, right? I think more broadly, you could say it's more like, it's more like um, be competent at what you're doing. Right? It's like, do a good job. And, uh, and I, I think that, I mean, it's pretty straightforward how that makes sense in the context of what we're talking about, right? If, if, you're, if you're lazy and if you're incompetent, if you're untrustworthy, if you're all these things, it's just going to harm your witness, right? It's just people, if, if they can't trust you in your work, they're not going to trust you in anything else, particularly with their, their eternal salvation and the purpose of life, right? If that's what you're, you're trying to sell them. And so, you know, I think it's pretty straightforward to see if, if that's how you understand things. Um, that, 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 that that's how this fits. Now I'll make an, another, another point, another quick point before I, I turn to some more practical tools or a couple quick points. One is I've been talking a lot about your conduct and work and your work and, and how your witness is all about, not all about, but your witness is primarily about demonstrating Christ in your work and, dem- and, and, and modeling Christ and, and that you're witnessing to people through the way that you conduct your work. And I think all of that is right and I think all that's accurate in the text. But I do want to make the point that that's not all it's about, right? As, as Pavan made the point correctly, I think a couple of weeks ago, you know, you hear this phrase, uh, you know, spread the gospel and use words if you have to, right? I was actually going to quote this until, <laughs> until quote this, use that quote in, until I heard his, his message. But he's right. Yes, that, it, and to, to some degree, that's true. It's about your kind of great, but, he, but Paul then was also right that at some point you have to articulate the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. We, we see throughout the New Testament that, it, that this church was spread through preaching, right? And talking about it. At some point you have to articulate it, right? And so don't think that it's just your conduct. You, you have to at some point talk to someone. But as Paul's talking about here, your conduct is what draws people to you. It's, it's what is your initial witness. It's something unique about you that draws them. And also it's what, and you see this over and over in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings, it's what legitimizes what you say, right? It's what makes them trust you and know that something's different about your life because it's manifest, the gospel's manifesting in your life, and so it legitimizes what you say. So I just wanted to make that point. And then a second point, you're not alone in all of this. It, the, if we're talking about sanctification here, we know that the Holy Spirit fills us and, and assists us in the endeavor of sanctification, right? So when you're talking about living a quiet life, you know, the, the fruits of the Spirit, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, peace, joy, um, patience, you know, uh, self-discipline, right? And so the fruit of the Spirit, right, can, can assist us in this. And we even see, we, I don't have time to go to it, but you can even see in the Old Testament that, that God, for the, the, the craftsmen that were building the tabernacle, those, the smiths and the, and the carpenters are building the tabernacle, the Holy Spirit filled them to help them do their work. It filled them to be good at what they were working. They were building this image of Christ, right? And so there's no reason, I think, to believe that it's not the same for us. That the Holy Spirit's going to fill us to help us do our work, to, 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 mind our, you know, to mind our shop. Because ultimately, the way we're going about all of this is just as the tabernacle is building this image of Christ to those around us, right? So this is a really interesting parallel, but I, just didn't, I didn't want to leave this, an entire talk about sanctification without, without mentioning the Holy Spirit's role in this, because it's, it's, so, it's so critical. So, so far, we've primarily been talking still sort of up in the conceptual um, and, and the, in the abstract space, right? And so what I want to do before I conclude is I want to bring, bring it down to earth. I want to I give us some really practical tools that we can take out of here and employ today or this week um, in order to implement some of the things that we're talking about here. And the first one I would like to leave you with is... Uh, 
honor the Sabbath. Think carefully about the Sabbath. Okay? And I know it's kind of strange. You're probably thinking, well, Jerry, you just spent 45 minutes talking about work, and now you're telling us the first thing we should do is rest. Yes. We're talking about a fundamental reconception about the way we view the world here. This is not something that happens on your drive to work. It's not something that happens in the hustle and bustle of your day. It's something that's going to happen through reading the scripture over and over. It's something that's going to happen through writing and thinking. It's going to happen through prayer. It's going to happen through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's going to happen through fellowshipping with other people, through meditation and quiet moments about what all of this means. That's how you fundamentally change how you think about something. And it doesn't happen overnight. And these are exactly the types of things that the Sabbath is set aside for us to be doing, right? Thinking about God. So you go to your work from the rest and from the contemplation of the Sabbath, and all of a sudden you're oriented properly, right? Another thing I would talk about that we could do better, a tool that we could use, is we could do this as a church. And I've noticed it, at least in my experience, as in I'm guilty of this, is we'll have a person come into the church and they're just they're full of energy and they're inspired and they're ready to serve God. And what is the first thing we think? And, and me included. It's like, man, how do we get this? How do we get her plugged into the church? Could she teach Sunday school? You know, how do we get it? Does she, can we, do we have a program that she could get involved with? Right? Or, or, you know, or, or, you know, all these types of things. But I think from my study of this, that one of the first things we should ask a person who's in that position, who's like coming into the church and just full of energy and ready to get out there is, what do you do, man? You can ask her what you do, man. But <laughs> you, say, you say, what do you do? Oh, you're a lawyer? Okay. First things first. Let's think about how you can be on mission how you can be a witness in the legal field, right? We got this guy, Roy, over here who's been a lawyer for years. I'm, I'm certain that he thinks about his job as a mission. I'm certain he's a witness in his work. Why don't you go have coffee with him and talk about his struggles being a witness in the legal field? Talk about what it means to be for him to be a, a witness in, 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 in a law firm, right? That's one of the first things I think that we should be asking and thinking about. This is where we spend a, a vast majority of our waking hours, Right? We're only in church a little bit. We're only in these church programs a little bit. So I think we could shift our focus when we're, when we're thinking about how to employ people in the church um, towards equipping them to be witnesses in their work. I think that's another thing that we might do. Um, and the third thing we can all do as individuals, and we literally just do this today, is this concept of work that we've created, not that we've created, that, that we've just thought through and, and, and developed today, it's not about God, like, plopping us into a circumstance and saying, okay, go get them, right? Like, figure out where you can work, figure out where you can serve me in here, you know, and go get after it, right? What it is is this image of God working in the world and then revealing to us what he's doing so that we can come alongside of him and, and, and come alongside of him in that work, right? It's a totally different paradigm, but I think this is a paradigm that, that, that we should be using to look for opportunities to be witnesses in our work, right? We should look for places where God is working and then see where we can come alongside of him. And you could do this today, right? You could literally just get a piece of paper and put three columns on it. And on the left say, okay, who, who are the people I bump into as I go about my work, right? Who's the, you know, who, who are my, my, my clients and my, my, my colleagues and the guy that, that talks to me in the elevator about his job every time and I'm just like trying to get to work, right? Who are all these people? And then in prayer, you could just ask God, like, show me where you're working in their lives, and you could think through your contacts with them and the things you know about them. And you could identify for each one, if possible, right? And in prayer, where God's working in their lives. And then in the third column, you could just prayerfully, with the Holy Spirit, say, where can I come alongside you, Lord? Like, what could I do, right? And then you have a plan of action. It's that simple. You have a plan of action to be a witness in your workplace, right? And I would encourage you, as a last step, you share it with whoever you're discipling with, Right? Talk through it with them and create some accountability. And we're talking about life and death here. This isn't something you should just write and think about and then set aside. Right? Create some accountability. So those are the, the three tools that, that I was able to come up with. I'm sure you guys can think of, of, of many more, but I, I didn't want to leave you without something practical you can implement, implement right away. And so that brings me to my close here. And I will just say the Holy Spirit convicted me powerfully while developing this message, and I, I hope he has too, as you too. I think we can all have, I think we all have room to excel more and more in this aspect of our lives. And in the message today, you know, we went, we went all the way back to the beginning, we went back to the past, and we saw what this, this perfect vision of work 
what, what, what could have looked like, right? And, and I think we can find some comfort and certainly some inspiration in that and some guidance in that. And we talked about how, you know, if, if, you're, if you're applying that model to, your, to, your, to sanctifying your work, what that looks like. And we talked about how that can give us some peace and some comfort and, and, and how we can better serve the Lord um, through that. And I think we can also say that that mindset shift would put us in the place that Frankel was talking about at the beginning, right? That place of purpose that transcends the suffering, no matter what the suffering is in your work. And I'll return to a, a quote briefly by Frankel about this. And he says, Our generation is realistic, for we have come to know man as he really is. After all, man is that being who invented the gas chambers of Auschwitz. However, he is also that being who entered those gas chambers upright, full of purpose, with the Lord's Prayer or the Shema Israel on his lips. Filled with purpose, with the Lord's Prayer on their lips, into the gas chambers. If they can do that oriented on a purpose, we can do that in our work oriented on a purpose. So that's the present. We talked about the, the, the distant past. We talked about comfort and conceptualizing our work that way in the present. And what I want to leave you with is in view of Christ's return, comfort in our work and a vision for our work in the future after Christ's return. And we started in the past, the beginning. And I won't say we're going to the end. I'll say maybe we're going full circle back as we sort of understand all of this, um, but it's in Revelation. And so I'll have you turn with me to Revelation 21. And there John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And later in the chapter, in, in verse 22, John, John continues with this image, and he says, I did not see a temple in this city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the king of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Now, what is a city? What is the city of New Jerusalem? Is a city a place where people sit around on a cloud and play harps? No, a city is a place where people work. So they come together in harmony and create things and build things and provide for each other and love for each other and, and, and serve each other. That's what this vision is of a city, right? And this is a city where we do all these things in harmony with each other and fellowship with God. There's not even a temple because God imbues the whole city with his presence. And then you see the kings are bringing their splendor in and laying it at God's feet. So this is our vision of work in the future. Working together in fellowship with God, creating the splendor that we're laying at his feet in worship. And we're going to do it forever. So I hope you have comfort from that vision of work in the future in light of, of Christ's return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the hope that it gives us and the comfort it gives us. We pray that in studying it and thinking about it, it changes our hearts to make us better servants of you. We pray that as we go out, these things change our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.